Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Good evening. There you go. You know the drill. You know how these things work. We all start early so that we can finish early, so that everybody can be looking at the inside of their lids by about quarter past nine. Is that okay? Because I know that's about as much excitement as I can take on a Monday evening, so I'd imagine you're no different. My name is David Hepworth. This is Word in Your Ear. And we'll start with the first half... Um, in the second half, we're going to be talking about uh, the history of Electra and of Tamla Motown, uh, both of which are celebrated in, in, in very sumptuous books, uh, which you can you're you're uh, more than uh, more than free to buy uh, from uh, from the, the Waterstones around the corner there, and when, when you go out the, this room and uh, and get those autographed. And but in the first half, we're going to be talking to uh, Richard Horton. Spelt the same as Mick Houghton, who's in the second half, but uh, just no in relation. order to tri- trip me up, uh, pronounced in a different way. Uh, but um, the, it's, we've now got the point with popular music where it's been going so long that if you, if you tell people that you were there at Live Aid, they look at you like you're the survivor of the Battle of Waterloo. <laughs> okay. And if you, if you can actually go back and say you saw the Beatles, this is pretty much like being at the Battle of Hastings, yeah. And uh, and so Richards was very was bright enough to spot that this that this window of opportunity to talk to the remaining the survivors of the Battle of Hastings ought to ought to be grasped while it's there. And so he's uh, he's put together two books in in, in the last year or so. Uh, the one about people who saw the Rolling Stones. Uh, the one we're going to talk about this evening is uh, is about people who saw uh, the Beatles, and uh, it's called "I Was There." Fans tell their unique story from Walton Fate, Fate to Candlestick Park. Would you please welcome Richard Horton? 
Richard, thank you very much for uh, for being with us this evening. You you come from Manchester for this. Uh, I have. Yeah. And so, well, we're very, we're very grateful to you for doing that. So, as I say, and as you say at the the front of the book, it's from uh, Walton Fate to Candlestick Park. And what you do, what you're doing, is putting together as many reminiscences as you possibly can from people who were eyewitnesses to this this unique entertainment phenomenon. How did you go about doing it? Well, I actually had a, my first story was in the family, so to speak. My father-in-law is a jazz musician still at the age of 79, and he played at the Cavern, where the Beatles supported him and his band, the Clydesdale Stompers. <laughs> Does he tell this story with great relish? He's not a fan of the Beatles. He wasn't then and he isn't now. So well, what did you think was missing about them back then? I think it's just that he was and remains a dedicated fan of jazz and doesn't rate pop music generally. So he was, he was of that generation whose was kind of livelihood was taken away by this, this new tide. That Absolutely, came yes. I mean, there were jazz clubs up and down the country in the late 50s, early 60s. It was the music that was played in colleges and suddenly these upstarts came along with two guitars and... <laughs> And a bass player. It's funny, it's funny. Obviously, you, you know, you've written about the Rolling Stones. It, it was the same thing that happened with the Rolling Stones, wasn't it? That, that they very shrewdly identified that if they could do 15 minutes in the middle of jazz bands, they would be really exciting by comparison. That's right, that's right. It's true, isn't it? It is, it is. It is that the jazzers didn't realise that they were boring <laughs> until the young upstarts came along. So your father-in-law still, you know, years later, Sergeant Pepper, all that stuff... Not changed his view at all? No, I, th- I think it goes back to when they were playing in the cavern. So the jazzers would go across the road for a drink because the cavern didn't sell alcohol. And John, Paul, George and Pete, best as it was, filled in for 20 minutes or so while they were having a pint. <laughs> when they came back in, they had to ch- share a dressing room and there was an altercation on one occasion where they were arguing about who was using the clo- clothes pegs. So... <laughs> My father-in-law had a shoving match with John Lennon and he's never forgiven him for it. <laughs> well, at least he's got a story he can tell. So you started with your father-in-law. So how did you spread out from there? So you get, It's not just a book about your father-in-law's reminiscences. No, it's not. What I did was uh, wrote out to local newspapers, by and large, which, although there's been lots of consolidation in the sector in terms of titles disappearing or becoming less frequent, there are still things like the Ilford Gazette and local newspapers are still desperate for local stories. So by producing a story, drafting a press release that talked about the Beatles played in your town 50 years ago this month or 50 years ago this year, local newspaper editors were more than happy to run a feature on my appeal for people to come forward. Oh, right, so you tailored it to... So you'd individually address each local paper saying it's a red-letter day this, you know, this week in Wakefield or wherever. Absolutely. Because you know, this is the anniversary. I spent many happy hours at the computer putting together a database and then firing off emails when the appropriate anniversary came about. Right, and then you'd appear in the local bay. This bloke is looking for your reminiscences of when they played Stevenage or wherever. That's right. And then they, what, did, did the correspondents pour in or was it hard to get? No, nope, I got quite, quite a lot of emails, but... I did ask the newspapers to publish my home address where possible because I knew that lots of people 
of the age that I was looking to talk to weren't necessarily IT literate, would prefer to put pen to paper. Surely not. <laughs> well, they, it's older people who still buy no, local newspapers. That's right, I, I suppose they, yeah, they, are, they are the readers, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so they came you know, steadily over a period of time. Yes, it took me about six months because I, obviously I, I couldn't wait always for the 50th anniversary to come right. about before I'd sent that letter. And in some instances, the 50th anniversary had been and gone. But it was, a, it was a blitz of the local newspapers up and down the breadth of the land from the Highlands down to Cornwall. So did you start to notice, you know, what were the particular features that these, these letters had in common or the nature of people's memories? Were they, were they sharp memories or very vague ones? They were often quite vague. People would say the opening line was often, I saw your appeal in the newspaper and it brought the memories flooding back. And then the letter would be two more sentences and then yours sincerely. <laughs> I said, I wish I, I wish I felt the memories flooding back. <laughs> so, so what do you do? You get it back to them and uh, if I, yes, If they gave me a, a telephone number, I'd give them a call and have a chat with them and, and talk it through over the phone. And sometimes they couldn't remember any more than, than they'd said in the letter. But there were lots of Columbo moments. So I'd talk to somebody, they'd tell me their story in two sentences, I'd have 20 minutes on their life history and all the other bands they'd seen that I didn't really want to know about at that time. And then there'd be a, oh, and did I tell you? <laughs> and sometimes it was those last 30 seconds where they'd reveal something like the, the woman who'd snogged John Lennon when she wanted to snog Paul McCartney. <laughs> and little snippets like that that sort of fill the book out really. Oh, really? So they, yeah, they, they, they edited them uh, themselves, the, their memories. They did. Um, so they, they, this is a, your classic Beatlemania, you know, bunch of fans, led by the most prominent uh, members of, of this crowd, obviously girls. What was the difference between what girls remembered about the experience of seeing the Beatles and what boys remembered. Was there a difference? Yeah, there was a difference. Boys were often focused on the technical aspects. So there's a story from <laughs> the Maney Hall in Sutton Coldfield and... A chap, the, where, the where, sorry? The Maney Hall in Sutton Coldfield. Right, OK. Where a chap remembers studying John's Rickenbacker and the, the, the notes he was playing on his guitar because this chap was in a band himself... And interesting, there were lots and lots of failed musicians, male musicians, who seemed to come forward with stories about how they could have been as big as the Beatles, but they never got the breaks. There's probably a book to be written about bands of the 60s could that have never, never got off the ground, absolutely. <laughs> so so what, were, what, was girl, what were the girls' memories? The girls, it was much more about the sensation of seeing them and the excitement and often how... Once Beatlemania started to take hold, they went along to listen to the music. They weren't going to screen their heads off, but when their sister or the girl they'd gone with suddenly started screaming, they had to join in because there was no way to resist doing so. That's the one thing I've observed in my, my, my career, my observation of teen hysteria. It's entirely to do with the other teens. It's nothing to do with the people on stage. It's all to do with having the permission to scream. I did ask one woman about why, why that happened. You know, if you were so sure that you weren't going to, why is it that by the time you got there you were just up in the air with everybody else? And she said it was the excitement. You'd be on the bus going to the gig 
and just talking about what you're about to see just built the excitement so much. Because obviously today, when you go to a gig, you've seen it on YouTube, you've probably watched the, the video on MTV a hundred times. Then you may have seen the Beatles on television just for a short... Once. Once, in black and white. And there they were in the flesh, yep. in full colour. Yeah. And and I think that it was such an occasion. That's why people exploded in the way they did. Yeah, yeah. So the the, bo- the blokes were quite reserved and resentful, actually, probably of the amount of attention. Yes, that these guys were getting from girls. I think I think you talked to somebody who um, who thought that the Beatles had nicked his wallet. Is that right? <laughs> he claims that uh, his wallet was found by the side of the road having disappeared from the dressing room the night before and it could only be the Beatles or their road manager who took it. But he wasn't pointing any fingers. <laughs> but I, think, I think that's the same concert where Paul McCartney used the support band's drum kit and the drummer heard his drums being played and came tearing out of the dressing room because it was a brand new drum kit. He hadn't played it himself and he wasn't very pleased that Paul was... Thrashing away on his drum kit during the sound check. <laughs> so he's still resentful about that. Yes. So now there's there's a lot of kind of personal encounters with you know I met the Beatles or I got their autograph or I posed for a picture with them or whatever. Now what? How were the individual personalities of the Beatles starting to be reflected in 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 people's encounters with them? This is in the very early days, before everybody had read everything about them. You know, they just met them. How, how did how did people find them? I mean, starting with Paul McCartney. Well, there's an interesting observation about Paul at a gig in Preston at the Guildhall in Preston, where the Beatles were backstage this chap got backstage and John was actually asleep I think on a bench and Paul was deciding what the set list was going to be and was asking for opinions around the dressing room as to what songs they might play and was quite dismissive of some of the suggestions that people came up with so he was quite controlling in a sense but also quite clear about what he wanted and what he thought would sound good and what wouldn't and I think that's quite instructive because yeah, yeah, you yeah. It's yeah. probably an element of Paul's career that's quite obvious Well, he's now. a planner, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> he thinks if you plan it, it'll turn out all right, whereas, yeah. whereas John probably didn't. No, I think John was a bit more spontaneous. As so, yeah. so, I mean, lots of people's encounters with John in, in this book, they're not very pleasant, are they? No, I think he comes across as a bit of a git sometimes, to be honest. And, and that's even the girls were saying that, that John was quite hard work and quite difficult to to get to like because he could be quite abrasive because that was the, the element of his nature that came out and he could be quite sarcastic whereas the others to a lesser or greater extent were willing to talk to the girls and and spend some time with the fans John was quite contemptuous of them almost yeah, yeah, yeah. and also he was blind as a bat without his specs so yeah. everybody was a blur out there anyway you know so that doesn't explain why he wore the yellow corduroy suit that somebody recalls him wearing to the cavern on one occasion yellow I corduroy think, I don't think he was color blind <laughs> that's a brave fashion choice isn't it in, in any era so ringo do they do people get on with ringo ringo comes across as quite detached in the book actually there's, there's very few sort of memories of ringo nice lad but not that bright is the 
sort of impression you get from talking to people. And these, these are kind of 14-year-old girls of the time saying, not that bright. He's in the Beatles, you're not. You know, not be that stupid. Uh, so, George Harrison? George was seen as, as the nicest of the four, the one who was most willing to spend time with people talking to them and the one who had a little bit of wit about him. So there's a nice story about a chap who goes backstage at the Odeon in Southport... His dad was the manager, so his dad got, them back, got him backstage and he asked George about how he can get into the music business because he's learning to play the guitar himself. And George takes a look around the dressing room, which I think was bare brick walls with a coat of emulsion on and a single light bulb and it was quite damp and a bit smelly. And George looked around the surroundings, thought about it for a moment and then said, if I was you, I wouldn't bother. <laughs> So let's talk about the, the, the kind of technology and the kind of the impact of the, you know, the live shows in those days. Because as you, you can see from this picture here, you know, it's a, it's a very kind of rudimentary setup. You've got the Vox amps on the stands there, and that's possibly a PA up there, you know, but it's, it's possible that the vocals went through the, um, the, the speakers at the side of the stage where they used to play God Sweat Save the Queen through at the end of the evening. And uh, so, you know, there was no security, was there, or anything like that? It was just, it was potential chaos and danger. It was. I mean, obviously, the very beginning, some of the earliest shows that are in the book were before Beatlemania took hold, so they weren't necessarily playing to huge audiences. And there's one particular occasion in Dingwall in Scotland where only 19 people turned up, (laughs) and because of the the main attraction up the road, actually half the audience left during the interval to go and see a band called the Melatones, who obviously didn't go on to become quite as famous as the Beatles. <laughs> and in fact, the Beatles themselves abandoned the gig at half-time and went up the road themselves. Oh, really? <laughs> Let's all go and see the Melatones. Oh, yeah, Melatones must have had a pretty difficult evening, mustn't they? They suddenly looked down and there's the four Beatles looking <laughs> You pinched our audience. But... Uh, you, I think you've got a story in here about Paul being rather concerned about one occasion where a girl has kind of fainted in the front row and sort of wants to stop the thing. That's right, and uh, the chap in the, in the book sort of realises this girl has fainted and so offers to help hand her out towards the audience and Paul winks at him so that she's passed forward and somebody on stage from the road crew actually manages to manhandle her off and out of the crowd without anybody coming to too much harm. <laughs> so... What about stories of them getting to gigs and getting out of gigs? Because we, you know, it's all it's handed down to us that they had to be smuggled in in laundry baskets and, you know, got out through the fire exit or whatever afterwards. Yeah, there's they they did a week in Western Supermare one summer, and there's a story from a guy who knew that the Beatles were coming to town but hadn't actually gone to the gig, but the Beatles' vehicle was leaving the theatre and he actually ended up on his motorbike escorting them round the back streets of Western Supermare to avoid the, the oncoming crowds. <laughs> and they hold up in an empty garage a, a foot showroom while they uh, waited for the crowd to disperse and then he ended up being their local escort for the week to take them around and make sure they got away from the theatre safely each night. Is that the same Western Supermare where they famously posed on the beach in Edwardian swimming costumes, is that right? It is, it is, and again, there's a memory of that photo session because somebody was on the beach with his mum 
saw the Beatles, went down to find out what was going on, and they borrowed his straw hat, so his straw hat appears in that photo session. So he says. So he says. But you would, wouldn't you? you know? So he, just, he saw these figures on the beach and thought, I wonder who that is, and went down the beach. It's the Beatles, obviously, in Edwardian swimming costumes. As you do. Welcome to the swinging 60s. So they, they, they also had to submit to the kind of indignities of having their pictures taken with... I think this is the mayor and uh, a mayoress of, of Luton here. <laughs> and, uh, it, it, and there's a case in here where the, there's local newspaper reporters always interviewed them and they always said, How you, what do you think of Luton? They always ask you, what do you think of the, of the local place? Because they'd never seen it, hadn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, and John's riposte to, to that one was, you tell us, son, we arrived in the dark and we're leaving in the dark. <laughs> But it's, a very, it's the very idea that they, that they should have a view on Luton is extraordinary, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I guess nowadays they'd be asked about the geopolitical situation. Uh, but, the, uh, possibly. What they think of Donald Trump, perhaps. I, I once had the good fortune to go through... Uh, Paul McCartney allowed me to go into his archive. This is years ago, uh, which was kept in an enormous great warehouse down in the East End. Not there anymore, I'm sure. And, um, and among the things he'd kept... He had the key to the city of just about every keys to the city, just about every city in the United States. You know what I mean? He, he, they'd just been presented by those things, with those things endlessly by uh, by by you know mayors who were just grateful to have the opportunity to have the pictures taken with them. Do you, you must have uh, spoken to people who met them as children and, and hardly knew who they were. Is that the case? Yeah, there's a couple of people, of somebody who used to walk to school with George Harrison, for example, and knew him as a teddy boy because George was quite particular about his dress. So never, never came across him again in later life, but when George became famous, that's the, they remembered him as a schoolboy who used to spend a lot of time combing his hair. Do you get the feeling with these people that they've spent a lot of time kind of burnishing their memories so that they've kind of built up their memories? I think so, yes, and... That they were waiting, desperate to tell, to tell somebody the story. So they're quite pleased that I got in touch and said, "Well, I'd like to hear your story," because up until then, it's only family and friends who'd ever heard the story. And suddenly, there was a chance to put it on a on a bigger platform. It was YouTube. Fifty years later, really. Right, right. So the, the stories they've been telling within the family, the family not wildly impressed. Not after fifty years of hearing the story again and again. <laughs> I don't think. That. I would be. I, I, the, the story about. Uh, my father-in-law being supported by the Beatles and him not being impressed has, has long since uh, lost its kudos within the family, I'm afraid. <laughs> There'll be other generations who want to hear it as well. So, you, you, now, you range across the world in this book. It's not just in the UK. No, so it, you, it covers stories in the US and Australia and New Zealand as well. And how did you find those memories differed in, in, the, in the United States as opposed to the UK? Well, I think in the US, they were just absolutely Beatle mad. In a sense, they were more Beatle mad than we ever were in this country. And there are stories of people getting tickets weeks in advance and then just counting down the days to actually go to see them because they'd seen them on the Ed Sullivan show. The whole country seemed to be gripped, or certainly teenagers seemed to be gripped by the idea of, of these British lads. And... It was just a, a bombshell dropping on American teenagers, whereas I suppose to an extent we'd grown up with them. Yes. Because they were 
on TV a lot more. They were local kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, You'd seen them through local And Scouse humour was something that the Americans yeah. weren't at all used yeah. to either, so there was that element to it as well, yeah. whereas perhaps it wasn't such a, sh- a shock to us, the way right. they spoke and the way they dressed and the way they interacted with each other. Now, this is a picture of them arriving, I think, in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. This is where the wheels come off. Is that is that fair to say? I think it is, yeah. Tell us why. Well, I think this is when the whole pressure of touring and what they could do and where they could go suddenly started to take its toll because it, I think it stopped being fun, really. There was much more being locked in the hotel room, having to do what was expected of them. You know, they famously... Uh, were told where they were going to be appearing by the by the Prime Minister, I think, or the President of the Philippines, yeah, yeah. and and didn't like the fact that they were reduced to the role of of puppets almost. So they've been through an immense amount of change in, in quite a short period of time. Yeah, and yeah. it couldn't have kept going on any longer. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and I think obviously what they were doing in the studio couldn't be reproduced on stage. They were still playing a lot of their, their older songs and a lot of covers when when they were appearing on stage, whereas the, what they recorded was much more advanced yeah. and wasn't, you know, irrespective of the issues about amplification and screaming audiences and whether they could actually hear themselves perform, they couldn't reproduce what they were recording very simply. Have you seen Eight Days a Week, the, the film about them mm-hmm. live? What do you think of that? Well, it's fantastic, yeah, and I thought it was really... If you couldn't be there, and if you haven't read my book, then you should see the film. <laughs> so, um, you've, this is not the first one you've done. As I say, you did the Rolling Stones. Because mm-hmm. uh, that, they're your first love, is that fair to say? That's right, yes, yeah. Right. But, but in the course of that, you thought, no, well, let's do a Beatles book as well. Because I people... started with the Stones book. I, I went to see the Stones in Stockholm a couple of years ago. Mick was 69 celebrating his 70th birthday later that month. Thankfully, a long way away. (laughs) And although, you know, been a Stones fan for 40 years, the penny suddenly dropped. Well, actually, Mick's getting on a bit. His audiences are getting on a bit, including myself. But his earliest audiences would be from more than 50 years ago, and that's when I first got the idea of of doing this. Collated the the Stones stories, and whilst collating the Stones stories had people say, oh, can I tell you about the Beatles as well? So even though I hadn't really asked that question, loads of people wanted to tell me about seeing the Beatles and their memories of that. Do you find there's more appeal in the Beatles book than the Rolling Stones? I think there is, because they were so... so um, were just so popular, but so popular amongst women in particular, it, was, it, was, it transcended music in yes. a sense, because... Liking the Beatles was an act of teenage rebellion in 1962 and 1963, despite the fact that now, looking back, it's perhaps hard to understand why four lads with slightly long hair and collars and ties would have been such symbols of teenage revolution, but they were. Yeah, yeah. So the big question, you've done the Rolling Stones, you've done the Beatles. Who's next, Spandau Ballet? Uh, Tears for Fears? Freddie and the Dreamers? In theory. Well, uh, there's a guy's lobbying me to do The Shadows, interestingly enough. Ooh. And somebody else lobbying me that I should do the book about the Moody Blues. Don't listen to those lobbyists, <laughs> is what I heard. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a better idea, haven't you? I have got a better idea. Well, I hope it's a better idea. I hope it's a 
an idea that uh, a publisher will be interested in, and that's The Who. That's a very, very good idea. It's a very and good I, idea. And I think the reason why The Who would be a good book is not only have you got a band that's produced some great music from a similar era to The Beatles and The Stones, but you've got four quite different personalities. You've got somebody in Keith Moon, for example, where there are lots of legendary, yeah. infamous stories about him and probably more to be told. But also, interestingly, from those early days, they used to travel to gigs together separately. So there are... <laughs> Couldn't bear each other's company. <laughs> but, it, but it means they are more likely to be encounters that people will have yeah. had with them, yeah. turning up at a place where you wouldn't imagine the whoever playing, but they used to play small and large places in their early career. And there was... They carried on playing quite small venues, even when they were famous, long after they'd done Monterey and Woodstock. They were, they were playing relatively small venues in the UK and not always selling them out as well. Right, right. And, and of course, great talent for chaos as well, The Who, you know, so you, you never knew what was going to happen with The Who at all. No, that's right, that's right. I mean, there's a, I've got one great Who story already. Go on. Where they played in Cromer in Norfolk <laughs> in February, which you wouldn't think was necessarily a huge uh, draw, but... The Can promo- I interrupt you a second before you go any further? Because tours used to start... During punk rock, all tours started at the West Runton Pavilion, which is not far from Cromer, is no, it? No, not at all. It's about two miles down the road. Well, that's probably where they were playing. Mm-hmm. Because they used to start tours there because it was, uh, it was too far out of London for the press to be bothered going out there. <laughs> so if you're going to make mistakes, make them out at the West Runton Pavilion. Anyway, carry on. So on this particular occasion, the... The, the guy I've been talking to was the promoter of the show and Roger Daltrey turned up two hours early with a portable television and said, have you got somewhere I can plug this in and set it up and can you get me a bottle of vodka? So the promoter gets the bottle of vodka, sets up the TV in the dressing room and then says to Roger, what do you want to watch? And Roger says, I want to watch the monkeys. <laughs> and he sat with Roger watched the monkeys and they chatted for a couple of hours while Roger demolished the bottle of vodka. Perfect preparation for a Who gig, I'm sure. Whereas nowadays, Roger is probably doing push-ups or something. They're probably in a flotation tank round the back there. So we'll look forward to that and loads of other stories about the Who uh, in in due course. But meanwhile, the book we've been talking about, uh, particularly, is... The Beatles, I was there, and, and Richard will be more than happy to sign you a copy uh, if you'd like to purchase one during the break that'll now take place. So would you thank Richard Horton? This podcast is brought much. to you so by The Word. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.